1: Welcome, everyone, back to another edition of New Books in Education. This is your host, Ryan Allen, and today I'm excited to bring a book that I think is apropos for sort of the times that we're living in, or at least this very current news cycle, and I'd like to welcome on uh, Dr. John Hale, Assistant Professor of Educational History, Department of Teacher Education, College of Charleston, and we're going to be talking about his very recent book, especially in, in sort of the publishing world, uh, the Freedom Schools Student Activist in Mississippi Civil Rights Movement. And this is from Columbia University Press, published just now in 2016. Uh, Dr. Harrell, thank you for joining me today.
0: Thank you for the invitation.
1: Um, if you could, maybe just get us started. What, what's your background? How do you get involved in educational history and then maybe even civil rights history or things like that as well?
0: Yeah, so um, I was completing a teacher education program uh, in Wisconsin, and uh, I, was, I was teaching high school, and at the time I was very interested in, in the historian and activist Howard Zinn, and I was sort of reading everything that everything I could get my hands on, and this led me to an article that he published in The Nation in the, the fall of 1964. It was called The Freedom Schools in Context, and I was very much interested in looking at history from the bottom up but also how we could use schools as a way to reform uh, systemic inequality. And when I read this article by Zinn, it introduced me to the the idea uh, of the freedom schools. And it was sort of a model that I I became interested in immediately. And when I decided to go to graduate school, uh, within the next couple of years, I was looking at the freedom schools as, as something to study. And I noticed that no one, uh, or there was not significant attention paid to the freedom schools by scholars and, and historians and also educators who were in the field. So I took this up as a field of study, but then also as a model to consider when we're looking at educational reform. So I had this idea when I started graduate school at the University of Illinois and really just kept with it. So the book is a product of this uh, inquiry. It Really goes back, uh, you know, 10 12
1: years. Yeah, fantastic. I think it's great when we can find something that, that maybe hasn't been touched upon that much and then really expand it, make it your own, and, and you know, become the expert that you, that you have and give us this book and get more people interested in this kind of uh, maybe missing history or, or history that we don't quite understand yet. So, if we could, then, then what, what are these? Uh, freedom schools what what exactly uh, or can you give us a sort of a little a little background on, on what that is, and then maybe as well uh, set us up with uh, mississippi education uh, Jim Crow uh, if you kind of like root us in when where you sort of began with the book
0: yeah so uh just a little bit of context to start is you know the term freedom school or Goes back to Reconstruction. We see the term "freedom schools" throughout there, and this, um, or since the since Reconstruction in uh, the 1860s and it's sort of grounded in the notion of free men's schools are the first schools that uh, originated during the period of Reconstruction, and free slaves made a direct connection between education and freedom because it was denied during slavery. So upon uh, emancipation one of the first acts that not only black Reconstruction politicians, but also local grassroots organizers, they established schools and they sort of took on the name uh, Freedmen's Schools or Freedom Schools because of what education meant to the freed slave community. So these, the idea of the schools, I trace back in the book to uh, Reconstruction. The Freedom Schools themselves in, in Mississippi was a network of uh, 41 schools, I estimate, about 41 schools uh, that really are traced to 1964. So the freedom schools that I look at specifically in the book are schools started by activists who are interested in reaching young people to train them to become leaders in the local civil rights movement, and also to prevent talented, young African-American youth from leaving the state, because they're sort of a brain journey in, in you know, migration still occurring. So it was an attempt to train local youth in the local movement and also to sort of inspire people to stay in the state too and to to take on um, the movement. But the freedom schools, you know, not only network of schools that conjure up ideas of education for freedom and education for for liberation, the freedom schools didn't start contrast to what, to the education that, the state of Mississippi was providing. So in 1964, schools were still segregated. It wasn't until the fall after the freedom schools started that schools were desegregated. And even then, there was only a handful of students that desegregated schools. And of course, as you can imagine, with the segregated school system, black schools were underfunded, under-resourced. Uh, they were you know, found to be inferior by the courts uh, uh, in, in the up to the Supreme Court level, of course. So they provided a new type of education, and it was education for activism. It was a really prominent moment in American history where we have this sort of model of education where we're directly training young people, you know, as early as the elementary grades, to become active in the civil rights movement. So what I try to do with the book is to give that history to the specific schools that start in 64, but place this in the long context of Uh, The Black Freedom Struggle and grassroots organizers regularly using education as a way to um, advance the movement.
1: And so, so, most of these uh, uh, activists—they come from the the Freedom Riders, or was it a larger activist who were there? Kind of both, or how, how did that how did that work?
0: Yes, so the Freedom Schools themselves were part of the Mississippi. Freedom Summer Project, which was a massive voter registration campaign that begins during the summer of 1964 called Freedom Summer. Mm -hmm. And there was about, we estimate, you know, uh, the numbers about, they give, you know, between 1,000 and 1,200 activists formally join Freedom Summer. But I found in my research that there are hundreds of other volunteers who just sort of come in to come to Mississippi unannounced and show up and work for a little bit for a couple of days and go home. So I say it's closer to 2,000 activists that mm-hmm. were really in Mississippi that summer. And it's these activists who, who start the Freedom Schools and teach in the Freedom Schools. So it's part of this larger Freedom Summer um, campaign, and they are the teachers. Mm-hmm. But after the, the activists go home after the summer's over, we see the local teachers mm-hmm. um, sort of take over the schools in some way. Uh, after the activists go home, so those are the, the activists. Um, but the students themselves often had a longer history of activism. They were active, as they talk about in the book. They were active in their local communities before attending freedom schools. So attending freedom
1: school was actually just an extension of their local activism. Okay. So, what, if we could maybe uh, continue along that uh, uh, that path, can can we uh, can, can we kind of talk about sort of what what the organization is, if, if this is separate from the normal schools, maybe you, you mentioned that they were, there were teachers still involved. Uh, did they go and set this up in, in churches, uh, other communities? How, how, did, how did that work?
0: Yeah, so um, it was a challenge to find space for freedom schools because most of the volunteers that were coming to Mississippi during the summer of 1964 were white, and you know they literally stuck out in, in, in local Mississippi communities. Just how they dressed, how they talked. The cars, right, had out-of-state license plates, so they were tagged from the start. And the Mississippi power structure wanted nothing to do with the activists, and in fact, regularly targeted them through law enforcement, arresting them, you know, providing tickets for any given reason. So they were targeted. In other words, that they weren't allowed into the public schools that existed. So they were forced to look for space outside of the traditional. Um, public spaces that were regularly available so this meant that freedom schools occurred anywhere from churches and church basements people opened their homes and freedom school could be held on homes there are numerous freedom schools that were he- held outside in uh, meridian we have a case where it's held in an old baptist seminary so churches supplied a lot of the space for the freedom schools but also local black community members all opened up their homes as well. So they were truly alternative in every sense of the word, not only in the ideology they put forth or the pedagogy that they employed, but also the physical space where they met.
1: So it was outside of public schools in very unorthodox spaces. Yeah. I guess uh, if we uh, can go into your, following your, your last point, talking about the pedagogy, talking about the curriculum, uh, where, where did that come from? The students themselves were able to have input into what they were sort of learning and doing or, or where, where did that come from and ha- and how was it different maybe than what they were sort of normally
0: doing? So it's interesting because there was a freedom school curriculum conference held in New York, uh, in March, you know, just, just, um, three months <clears throat> excuse me, Three months before the, the summer program actually starts. And here we have activists such as Miles Horton, who is a radical white educator from Tennessee. He's a founder of the Highlander Folk School. Ella Baker contributes to this. They draw on the work of uh, September Clark, who's a, an activist in South Carolina. And they sort of sit down and outline the curriculum. And the first part of the curriculum is, is sort of shaped by what activists think young leaders need to know. So they're drawing upon... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, black history, uh, teaching the longer history of the civil rights movement. They're they're teaching about resistance during the era of slavery. They're, of course, drawing upon black culture and literature, so they're they're assigning uh, writers from the Harlem Renaissance, for instance, who's very much immersed in black history and culture. But there's also an aspect of the curriculum that focuses on leadership development. So here, where Freedom School students are learning how to participate in nonviolent direct action protests, how to take the kicks and assaults of, of white supremacists during protests. They're learning how to organize, how to canvass. They're handing out voter registration primers that they use to, to register voters during this time period. So it's, it's content uh, in the movement, but it's also leadership skills. At the same time, the curriculum is, is intentionally left open to meet the interests and needs of the students. So when students go to school, if they want to learn a particular subject, Freedom School students are going to accommodate their teaching to meet the interests of the students. So for instance, we have numerous cases throughout the Freedom Schools where black students are coming to teachers and asking to learn subjects such as French, because French is associated with white education and college access, and a lot of students don't have these classes in the regular schools. So they come to Freedom School and they say, we'd like to learn French. So Freedom School teachers sort of scramble to to meet that interest and find someone who can speak and teach French. So it's prescribed by activists, but there's also this element that's left open for the Freedom School
1: students to determine themselves. So if we could maybe talk a little, we talked about the teachers, but maybe who who are these students? Who are the ones coming to the school? Are are they, you, you mentioned they're already sort of potentially activist in their communities. Uh, but can we just talk about the, those students? And you actually talked to, I think you said, like 10 or so um, former students. So can you maybe also talk about um, just what it was like uh, uh, actually meeting them or talking with them?
0: Yes. What I wanted to do with, with, with the Freedom Schools, with, with my book project, was to actually ground the history in the from the perspective and vantage point of the students, because what I noticed within the historiography was that not only were historians and scholars overlooking the freedom schools and the impact it had on the movement, but when the story of freedom summer and freedom schools were, um, reconstructed with, within the literature, it was off. It was almost always, or almost exclusively from the viewpoint of the activists themselves. And that's a different viewpoint from what the students are bringing, uh, to the literature. So I, intentionally grounded my book from the perspective of the students. So the first couple chapters follow a handful of students and how they arrived at the front doors of the freedom schools. So to to do this, I mean, you, you have freedom school poems in, in the archives, for instance, you have the curriculum in the archives, but that really doesn't give you the whole voice. So what I did was I tracked down to the best of my ability, as many freedom school students as I could find them. Um, I made contact with and, and interviewed um, you know, 20, 25 students, but then with the book, students that I established a a close working relationship with, I prioritized their stories and those who really took the time to teach me this history, so, so I, I prioritized certain students within the book. And so, for instance, the young man on the, the cover of the book is Eddie James Carthen. He lives in Chula, Chula Mississippi, in the Delta, to this day, and... Freedom school students like Mr. Carfin, uh, now, you know, I met the Lofton, Washington, I interviewed. Brenda Travis records are available. You know, these students, what I found almost across the state of Mississippi is the students who were going, who were attending freedom schools were already active in the movement. So some of the parents of the freedom school students were involved in NAACP. Some were involved in registering voters, before Freedom Summer began, some students were already arrested. Hezekiah Watkins was a student in Jackson. And he was arrested during the Freedom Rise in 1961. So these students were already activated. You know, the Freedom Schools didn't necessarily introduce students to the movement like activists thought. So following the students, you see that they were already active, and this was an extension of their activism. And this actually creates a dynamic within the classroom where many times the students are the ones actually teaching the teachers about the movement or what it meant to be black in Mississippi or what the movement meant to local Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So the students, again, very active in the movement, and this was just sort of sharpening the skills that they already were learning by, um, or by, as participants in the ongoing movement. Sure. Sure.
1: Did, did you get a sense when you were talking to students that these, the Freedom School experience uh, was something that they still carried on or that, that it had a lasting impact on on the person that shaped them? Or, or was it a to- within a totality of this whole era um, that, that shaped them as well?
0: It was partly, you know, it was the whole movement itself that sort of, sort of shaped the rest of their um, lives. And it's also, you know, they're a little too young to to remember Emmett Till, but they grew up hearing stories about Emmett Till and that shaped the rest of their lives as well. But everyone I interviewed and spoke with and, and visited the sites of the schools with the students who participated, the Freedom Schools themselves very much had a lasting impact on them. Because not only were they becoming more involved through the Freedom Schools and joining the front lines of the civil rights movement and oftentimes arrested and assaulted, which itself... Is a memory that you know they carry with them to this day. But the freedom schools, you know, this created close personal contact with sympathetic white activists. And typically, growing up black in Mississippi, uh, these students, if they came into contact with white people, these were hostile, you know, hostile white folks who never treated them as equals or never took the time to genuinely engage them on a personal level. So this was the first time that many black students interacted with, again, sympathetic white activists and teachers, and that itself I found was a very profound moment in the lives of these young people. And that moment of integration, that true integration of interacting equal, equally with someone from a different race truly had a strong, profound impact on the rest of their lives, and they all they all recount the Freedom Schools as a moment in their life where they truly became active. And many of them, if not all of the, of the people I interviewed, are still active in, in one way or
1: another uh, to this day. So, what what then? Uh, if if this was sort of uh, an important point um, within. Mississippi education, civil rights movement. What, what sort of happened to the freedom schools and uh, maybe even did they still have a direct legacy with education or maybe uh, civil, still civil rights movement, social movements there today?
0: Yeah, so what happened, again, you know, the freedom school ideology mm-hmm. remains consistent throughout the civil rights movement and the black power movement. Again, we trace this to Reconstruction mm-hmm. Uh, but the freedom schools themselves, the network of schools that originated in nineteen sixty four it, it sort of ends and dissipates by nineteen by the summer of ni- the end of the summer of nineteen sixty five and as I look at toward the end of my book is um, the head start program in mm-hmm. the war on poverty really sort of in, in some ways um, appropriates what happens in in Mississippi, because the federal government is investing in Head Start education programs, and these are essentially grassroots programs, and a lot of the students and teachers and parents involved begin to work with Head Start, so there's sort of a transition between Freedom Schools and Head Head Start, and this sort of takes away um, some of the energy that was behind the Freedom Schools. Also, of course, when these 1,500-plus activists leave the state of Mississippi, This naturally takes away from the the teaching force that, you know, occupy the classrooms of the freedom schools. When the teachers leave, many of the schools shut down. Uh, But, you know, having said that, the freedom school ideology persists. And we see this when the freedom school students go back to their public schools. They conduct boycotts, uh, student walkouts. There's numerous instances of walkouts throughout the state of Mississippi and when these walkouts occur and they leave the public schools and protest, they actually form freedom schools to maintain a level of education. And they call them freedom schools in, in honor of the schools that they just attended. So, you know, it, it carries on in some forms, but then also it, um, it transforms or morphs into a different sort of program, which we see in Head Start and other war and poverty programs. And then today, to answer your question about the direct legacy, uh, Marion Wright Edelman and the Children's Defense Fund have a very extensive Freedom School program which exists across the country. So this is a direct legacy of the program, and we see many of the ideas that were uh, implemented in 1964 we see in the Freedom School curriculum today.
1: Sure. sure. So I guess we're kind of coming to the end of the, the podcast, um, and, and, and if I could maybe if you could just one, one takeaway that you would like us to, to, to get from the book. And um, if we also ask, sort of the, the final question also on the podcast is, uh, you know, what are you working on next? What project comes, um, comes after this one? If you
0: yeah. So um, one takeaway from the book I, I think everyone, I would like everyone to consider is that education in many ways was the foundation and backbone of the civil rights movement, not and I'm not speaking in terms of the Brown decision. I'm talking about how activists and young people used ed- education as a way to advance and further the civil rights movement. People were educating themselves on how to join the front lines of the movement. And they're also educating themselves um, about what the movement itself was. So the education is absolutely crucial to expanding the movement. And also, another takeaway from the book is just to look at how young activists were. We typically associate civil rights activists with college-age students and, and, you know, those ministers and pastors who were outspoken. But when you look at the age of of young people in the movement, I mean, these were 10, 11, 12 through 16 years old. They were on the front lines of the movement. In many ways, they implemented protests that sort of galvanized the local movement. It was young people who were at the front lines, and I don't think we really give enough credit to young people. So to really see that young people were – Uh, central change agents in the movement and that today still, you know, young people hold the capacity and the potential to truly implement a movement or to maintain the movement that we're observing today. In in terms of the project I'm working on now, I've uh, received a fellowship for this past year and I'm starting uh, research and beginning to write a new book on the history of black high schools and their role in the Southern Freedom movement. So, as I was researching the freedom schools, I noticed again how young activists were, and I really thought that there was a gap in the historiography that weren't addressing young people and especially high schools. So, high schools themselves, I'm finding, were incubators of the civil rights movement, and high schools were also sites of of, um, political ideology that really shaped the movement. And we're just not giving them enough credit, so my new project is sort of unearthing the material around youth, the politics around youth and the role of the high school.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I love uh, the message that, that you end with the book, and I think the, the time that we're living in right now and in the past you know, year and a half, two years, uh, we, can, we can take away a lot from that. Uh, so hopefully everyone out there, you know, if you're not a student yourself, if you have students, get, maybe get them to, to check this out and, and to pass on this history. Um, and then also the the next project sounds great. Maybe when you're when you're done, we can have you back on if that's going to be in, the, in a book form. Um, but I just want to say uh, uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Hale, and I want everyone to go check out the Freedom Schools student activists in the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement. And to everyone out there, I hope you learned. Mm-hmm.